I fell into victim mentality a lot. And I refocused and reframed to seeing myself as a survivor. Someone's always got a deeper, more gnarly scar than you do. It's not about that. But for me, it was a mindset thing of, of changing from being the victim into the survivor. When I was in victim mode, I was waiting for someone to save me, almost entitled, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm hurting here. Someone come with the rescue boats. And there were none. And so I had to make a decision. Do I drown right here on the spot? Do I die? Or do I start swimming to shore, even though I can't see shore? And I decided to swim. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Taco Deli, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today, I have a conversation with Brian Elliott. One of the things on my bucket list this year was to meet more writers and producers of film studios. And he was at a huge film studio, NBC, where he was responsible for a $30 million profit and loss and walk the red carpet. Why is it red, by the way? Anyways, he had the perfect job, but he was growing restless and wanted to create his own content. So he quit his cushy-ass job and started his own production company right before the 2008 recession. By the way, he has four kids and a wife and a mortgage. But he made it through the 2008 recession stronger, and he's worked on some really interesting projects. Here's three gigantic things you're going to learn in this episode. Number one, the benefits of building a personal brand that he's used on his business and his network. Number two, how to build your minimal viable audience. I love that. That was interesting. And number three, how Brian convinced Seth Godin to speak at his event after getting turned down multiple times. Make sure to subscribe to Brian's YouTube channel. You can look it up on YouTube called Behind the Brand. Hit that subscribe button. You're going to enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash okdork, where I put out around two to three tasty business videos a week to help you on your business journey. P.S. If you are looking for a job or hiring for remote workers, check out dynamitejobs.com. It's the number one place online for remote jobs. My very good friends created it, and we hired our own video editor from there. For job seekers, it's literally the largest selection online. Sounds like one of those weird car commercials. But anyways, and for companies, they offer a flat rate, no fees, no hidden costs, no nothing for you to get the best people online. This is not a paid ad. I just love these dudes. So if you're hiring or looking for work, check out dynamitejobs.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Kane Munro from Down Under. <laughs> I'm working on my accents, guys. He left a review saying, I've honestly never left a review on any podcast, mate. But this is fantastic. Episode 149 is straight up awesome. And tacos. You know I love that taco stuff. Anyways, thank you so much, man, and I appreciate every single one of you listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review. I check every single one of them. So I did a video on how much does YouTube really pay me, and I did a case study of a video that went viral. It got over a million views. Which video? Uh, I did it with Mel Robbins, who's an author. Dude, that was a really good video. Oh, thanks. Well, Mel's great. And I posted it, and I actually posted it around this time two years ago, and it completely flopped. Statistically, it was a failure. It got like you know a few thousand views, and I was totally bummed out because I knew the video was great. I loved what she was saying. It was like really great advice, tactical, wasn't bad at all. And then, but nobody watched it, and so I was like, "What happened?" Well, you know, so I went to work, looked at the analytics with the dashboard, you know, looked at competitor videos, tried to do the whole thing. At the end of the day, I couldn't figure it out. You know, so I just started noodling with it. I changed the title. I changed the tags. I changed the thumbnail several different times. I changed the category. This was sort of my big reveal is I figured out my videos were in the wrong category. And I just sort of rolled with it because I thought it was logical. Like that's where I should be. So I was in people and blogs because I thought, well, I'm a people. 
And my blog is sort of a vlog, and so that makes sense. But it's actually the default YouTube setting for categories. And the whole settings menu, I don't know if you've been to it, the categories. No, it's been a while. It is not intuitive. They also don't have a category for business. So it's like, well, I'm a business channel, but like I have to choose something else because it's they don't have business. So people and blogs, it was. The algorithm did not get me, and so it was not rewarding me with views, and it was not discoverable. So then I changed. I thought, okay, well, entertainment's the next logical category. Let me try entertainment. So I changed my videos to entertainment. I changed Mel's video to entertainment, and it went from bad to worse. So the stats went. Oh, I was really waiting for your like big reveal. Well, wait, it's gonna it's gonna be good. So it it went down even further. I was like, oh, what have I done? So what I figured out with entertainment is that the algorithm it sort of put me in this big pool of other entertainers, huge YouTube channels that had from a million to ten million subscribers, people from. Casey Neistat to MKBHD to Mr. Beast. I mean, that's who I was playing with all of a sudden in the entertainment category. Uh, and the other thing I looked closely at was the CPMs. You know what CPMs are, right? I knew that because I didn't have 10 million subscribers, I wasn't going to get, you know, five or 10% of the views. And that's usually how it works, right? Like whatever your view count is, it's five or 10% of your sub count, right? So I thought, well, how can I make my videos work smarter, not harder? So that, well, I'm going to work on the CPM rate. And what I learned from going entertainment is that the CPMs dropped even further from people on blogs. Like my CPMs were like at $10 and then entertainment dropped them down to like $2 to $4. And I was like, this is, this is not good. And so finally, as sort of a last ditch effort, I, just, I decided, all right, well, even though my videos are mildly entertaining and it seems logical that it should be here, let me just try education because, you know, I'm a mm. teacher. I want to teach people things. I'm also a learner. So I want to learn things. Maybe my channel is education. I popped it into education and no joke within like two months, my CPMs went 4X, 8X, 10X. Anyway, so I was, I started at like $4 CPM and I was up to $40 CPM. I was like, yes. And then all of a sudden the algorithm got me, got my channel or got Mel's video. And the thing just went and it took off from like a few thousand views all the way up to millions. And so the big reveal was that I didn't give up on the video. It took two years, but in the last two years, YouTube has paid me over $20,000 net for that video. And gross, it's made about $32,000, $33,000. But my cut with the YouTube payout program, 60-40 split was about twenty grand. So not a bad return on the investment. It just took a little bit longer. We talked about patience and you know being willing to be like the last man standing, that kind of thing. That was my YouTube case study. So then I got wise. I was like, oh, okay. I have 600 videos. They all switched over to inter- uh, education. And the same thing happened. Like I just saw incremental growth on all of them. I'm not going to put this out there because then everyone's going to go to education. It's going to get swamped. <laughs> but I guess with with a lot of the yeah. the tinkering of something, I, I think what uh, happens to be the case with the craftsman is that they keep trying to improve either one video or one craft. But it's interesting that you stuck with that versus trying to say like, I think right now with with my content and the way that we're running some of our business, it's like, all right, Put on another one, just put on another one and keep improving that way versus, did you think that clip deserved to be that big? Yeah. And I heard you tell the story of, of why you're working less on AppSumo. It's losing money faster than it's gaining money. Oh, Sumo.com. Oh, Sumo. AppSumo is not losing money. I'm sorry. You want me to re-say that? <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, we'll... Anyway, I got the gist of what you were saying. It's like, it's a losing battle. It's, it's almost a lost cause. And so you're refocusing where the money is. And that's kind of what I was doing with the video. But at, in that case, like I already had that sunk cost and it's really all I had to hang my hat on. Like I didn't have any other options. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this work by hook or by crook. And so 
I just kept working on it and noodling it because I really wanted to figure out. I was, I knew that it was good. The trouble is vanity metrics like subscribers, any kind of engagement, it's social proof, right? So if people see us as 300 views, it must, it must suck. But that's not the case, right? Views and the, the, the visual metrics are one way to measure whether something is good or not, but it's not always super reliable, you know? How do you think this applies to how people should be approaching different things in their business lives or even in their personal life? I think it goes back to vision. So if you, if you believe that something is worthy or something is worth doing, first you have to look at the return on the investment. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense to spend all your money, you know, go out of business and, you know, then you can't feed yourself or your family and you have no other options, right? You have to be able to fight and come back and fight another day, even if you lose the battle. But like at the, at the base of it, I believe that if you, if you know it's great and you have that vision to see it through, it really is just about figuring it out. And the people who figure it out are the people who keep going and keep trying and don't give up on it. I think it's a Babe Ruth quote, right? He's credited with, you can't beat someone who never gives up. And it's true. Like If I just keep trying, and I think if we talked about Rudy on the off-camera on the other video, the reason I love Rudy so much is because Rudy, totally. except for that one time, he gave up, but he learned his lesson about giving up. He just kept trying and trying and trying, and that was the key to his success. Well, let's uh, change gears from, from YouTube world um, to the audience who doesn't know you, or how do you describe yourself? Like, who is Brian Elliott? So I am a writer, director, producer. I have a production company called the Good Brain Digital Studios, and we do a lot of film and commercial work. In my past life, I worked for the studios. I was on the brand marketing and strategy team of a big Hollywood studio where I had like a $40 million P&L and I walked the red carpet with movie stars and, and spent all the studio's money and, and every kind of advertising and marketing activity that you can think of. And then I got inspired. In fact, I had always sort of wanted to become the creator, someone who makes stuff. And it was at a point where the studio was, we had to sort of reinvent ourselves because we were selling these movies on DVD for $20, $25. To make them, it cost about a dollar. So we had to justify the higher cost or the higher margins. And so we, you know, as an industry, we invented this stuff called um, added value, which ended up being like either alternative endings, bloopers, director's commentary, actor's commentary. And so, you know, we'd find ourselves going out to places like New York and interviewing Robert De Niro. And you'd sit down and be like, you know, so Bobby, you know, you made this movie called Raging Bull. We had to get in fantastic shape, become this boxer. What'd you eat for breakfast, right? <laughs> Ask him like his, his morning routine. And as I'm sitting there, the light bulb goes on. I thought, I'm sort of directing right now. This is kind of fun. I, I want to do this full time. And so I started secretly plotting my escape, asking the camera people like, oh, you know, what kind of camera is that? What's the aperture? How are you lighting this? What's the ISO? Oh, what kind of microphone is that? You know, just all these production questions soaking it up. And then it was also difficult because there was gatekeepers, your last name had to be Abrams and first name had to be JJ to be granted permission to, to make stuff. Uh, but in, in 2005, this little website launched called YouTube. And I thought, this is it. This is the signal. This, the playing field's being leveled and someone like me with a no name can go out and make stuff and put it up there for free and maybe build an audience and become this creator. That was my plan. So I was, I was ready to quit in 2005. My boss left, went to Disney asked me to come with him to help rebuild the department. I went as a consultant and actually stayed for two years because the money, money was really good. 
And so right at the tail end of 2007, I decided my plan, I'm ready to quit, cut the cord, start my production company. And uh, that's what I did. Headed right into the perfect storm of the Great Recession that I had no idea was coming. We will talk a little bit about that. But I think one of the things I want to highlight that's interesting about your experience is that before we started the show, you asked me, like, uh, why do I want to grow my YouTube channel? But what was more interesting is you, you had your answer, which was you'd like to grow your YouTube channel because it brings you business for deal flow for the production studios. So what I want to highlight from that that I thought was really interesting. I know I did the, the softball to you. You said a quote, which is you never know who's watching. And I think that's really fascinating about just any content creation out there for people to consider. If you're blogging, if you're YouTubing, if you're net newslettering, whatever you're inging, is it, you don't know who's watching. But I think one of the things that, that was interesting about how you're approaching it is you treat it like a professional, where I think a lot of people are uh, experiencing it like an amateur. And so what I mean by that is that when we started this conversation, you said, well, here's two things I want to talk about to make sure we cover it. And that is because you're professionally wanting to get business as a business, because the difference between a professional and amateur is a professional makes a living out of doing that profession. True. So you talked about, and I just want to highlight because I think it's really interesting for people to reflect in their own content creation or in their own businesses and their own lives where they talked about things you want to talk about because you have an interest, which is great. That's what a professional does. Like if you're speaking somewhere, you, do you have, what's your objective? The other two things that you did is that you brought around really expensive cameras, relative. You're like, oh, it's not that expensive. I'm, he brought around two $5,000 cameras, uh, super high budget, brought his own chairs, by the way, <laughs> to an interview. Like, I don't know who really does that. It's like, I guess Jamie Foxx, who we hung out recently, he brought his own champagne to a meeting. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing you did was that as we're doing our conversation, you could not stop worrying about my microphone. I think there's something there as people are maturing and evolving professionally about how are they elevating themselves and treating it professionally. So I don't know if you realize that or notice that. I appreciate you highlighting that. Can I tell you a story? Always. Is it a good story? It is a good story, I think. You, you <laughs> could be the judge. I mean, it's really not up to me to, me to judge. It, it's a good story for me because I learned. I feel like I learned something. So the reason I started this show, the series behind the brand is because, you know, as a segue to where I left off, I quit this great job with health benefits and everything. And I had at the time, I have four children now. I had three little kids, a wife who depended on me, and um I was completely hosed. I felt like I made the biggest mistake of my life. I cut the cord to everything that I needed, resources, capital. I thought I was in good shape because I had a plan, but that plan fell through because of the recession. Everything went away. And so all of a sudden, I had to figure out that no one was coming to save me. This is a theme that will come back again and again in my life. But um, so I thought in that moment, kind of put my brand marketer strategy hat back on. I thought, all right, pause. What do I need right now? How can I solve this problem? My pants are on fire. Everything's falling apart. You know, what do I do first? And so I thought, you know what? I really need answers to know how to be successful like right now. And so the only way I know how to do that is to reach out to people who I feel like have been there and done that. And so I made a list of the people that I thought were really smart. And I thought, all right, I have lights, camera, action now. I know what to do. I'm going to literally create a show that solves my own problem right now. And so I started reaching out to people that I thought knew what they were talking about. This was 2008. There was this guy who was really active on Twitter. He had a wine show, what was called Wine Library TV at the time. He was really obnoxious from New Jersey. His name was Gary V. And I found him very interesting. And I thought, this guy's onto something. So I reached out to Gary, and, and he was you know, one of the first people on my show uh, when almost no one had heard of him. And I was super impressed. He had really great advice. And so I thought, all right, on to the next. And so I reached out to Seth Godin. And um, Seth had been, you know, sort of my long distance mentor from afar because I'm a big fan of his books from Permission Marketing to 
purple cow, all those things. And um, Seth politely turned me down. He said, you know, I'm, I'm in New York, you're in LA. Um, it's just, you know, it's not worth my time. I said, okay, well, maybe at some point, not today, but at some point, this will be worth your time and you'll know who I am and we'll build this friendship. And he said, okay, great, you know, hung up. And so over the course of every few months, I'd check in with him. Hey, you know, things are going well and I've had uh, some of these other people on the show and we're getting some traction. And he, he still said no. But the show was great because I think there was a lot of people at the time who were in the same boat that I was, who were desperate for you know, for answers and solutions. They were panicked like I was. But the, I felt like the show was really helping me personally. Like I was learning. Sometimes I would catch myself in the interview just like, you know, being the sponge, absorbing. Like, okay, I'm taking really great notes. I'm going to watch this again and again. Thank you. I didn't really care about the audience as much, to be honest. I was really making it selfishly for myself. But I realized it become this great asset. Anyway, so another year goes by, and I'm still checking in with Seth. And it occurred to me that I had really not asked Seth what he needed, that, you know, what's important to you? And so I had this light bulb moment where I just said, just as simple as that, Seth, what's important to you? What do you need right now? What, do you, what don't you have? And he told me, and I said, oh, I can do that for you. What was it? Well, at the time, he had written this book called Lynchpin. And it was due to come out. He goes, I really want to make the New York Times bestseller list. And you know, I don't want to game the system. I want to do it legitimately. I'm trying to pre-sell books. And I said, why don't we do a live event? I'll host you here in Southern California. A lot of people will show up because you never come to SoCal. I know you only talk to you know, like Fortune 100 companies and you're a big deal and all that. But like, I promise you, we could sell a lot of books if you come. He goes, well, I need to sell probably more books than you think I need to sell. And I said, try me. He goes, well, first of all, my day rate is $80,000. I was like, oh, that's a pretty good day rate. You know, you come speak for an hour, 80,000 bucks, boom. But he goes, I'll tell you what, if you can pre-purchase 2,000 books, and I think they're like 20 bucks at the time, and then I'll come out to California and I'll speak for an hour and you can sell tickets to the event. Doesn't matter. You know, I just want the books to be sold. They need to be pre-purchased by the certain date to be able to make, you know, the numbers. And uh, he said, by the way, I need a non-refundable cash deposit of $10,000 um, by this date to hold the date. And then I'll give you two weeks to, to, you know, to make the balance up and, and off we go. And $40,000 to me in 2009, you could have just said $40 million because it was like Mount Everest to me. I was cash strapped. I was struggling, you know, trying to keep my head above water. And it was a really hard time. But I was feeling inspired because I had built this email list of people that were loyal subscribers and watchers of the, of the show and that they got to know me. And I think at the time it was probably like 10,000 people. And so I was like, you know what? I'm feeling like I'm in the zone. I said, let's go for it. I told my wife, she said, you're crazy. This is a terrible idea. This is never going to work. We don't have $10,000 to spend. I said, I'm just feeling it. Send him the check. And then I pushed the button on the email and I said, all right, I got Seth Godin. He's going to come out here live. He never does this, you know, especially not for someone like me. Who, who am I? No one. But all you have to do is, you know, buy a ticket. He's going to show up and talk for an hour. You're going to have Seth Godin right here at the feet of the master. And I've got a ticket for $50 and I have a ticket for $100. So in my calculation, we need to sell 400 tickets at $100 or 800 tickets at $50. Your choice. You know, there's a VIP ticket and a regular ticket. and I pushed the button, sent the email out, and within about six hours, I had sold 
950 tickets, you know, a lot for 100, a lot for 50. Anyway, so I had a huge pool of cash, tens of thousands of dollars beyond what I needed to do. And I, and I called them up and I said, you better figure out where you know, Laguna Beach is because I got you. And here's the receipt. I just bought the books. It's a done deal. He goes, really? And I asked him later, and he's, he, he gave me the stretch goal thinking I'd never hit it, but we did it. And it was, you know, the lesson is I had to ask him what's important to him. Because if you don't ask people, you're just making assumptions, you might be off, right? And so that's why I wanted to be clear with you what's important to me so that you don't go off in a different direction. But I think it's that simple. And I noticed when people want to work with me or people want my time and attention, they don't ask what's important to me. I find a lot of the time people are very selfish. They want what's in it for them. Oh, you know, I, I need this for my show or my content, or I need you to do this without even asking what's important to you. I yeah. think it's crazy, but I mean, that, that was sort of the, the lesson. I think one of the things we said earlier, which I really liked, is that as you're putting yourself out there, and I think people should just consider putting themselves out there, how you just get to connect with amazing people. And one of the things that you, I think you did in this example, which is a, a beautiful thing of it, is that if you find out what's important, everyone is accessible if you figure out what's important for them and help them get what they want, which we all heard those annoying quotes. I guess one thing maybe on this, this YouTube public, as you've become public uh, and sharing yourself, like how has it affected your business? And do you think that every business should have a YouTube channel? Yes and no. I think that everyone who has a product or service, who has a brand or a company should put out some sort of content. So whatever your strength is. If you love to write, you should write. If you're great on camera and you've got a face for camera, you should be on camera. If you are shy, you don't love camera, do a podcast. It's been talked about by other people who are way smarter than me. It's sort of this breadcrumb idea, right? Like you're leaving this trail back to where you hang out and do stuff or make stuff that people might like. And so I think a YouTube channel or a podcast or a, a blog or a vlog or whatever you want to call it, articles, write on Medium for all I care. Leave some sort of breadcrumb trail. Um, heck, I mean, you could use social media platforms. I think YouTube's probably the only exception to that. Like, I feel like Facebook, like Mark owns that and he's going to lock it down or lock you out someday. And same thing for Instagram, right? Mark owns Instagram. TikTok, jury's still out. I mean, TikTok is fun. I love it. But like YouTube feels more, uh, I guess, flexible and, f and free for creators to do their thing. Uh, where it's not ruled by one autocrat, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of putting your content out there. What has it brought you in terms of business? It's changed my whole life. It's done so many things. I mean, the act of creating the content, you know, so how do I go about creating it? It goes back to- um, I don't know how you create it, but what has it brought you? So I, wa I want to get there with a two-step answer. One, one is I needed to, f to understand, like, who's it for and what's it for? So it started with me. Who's it for? It's for me. What's it for? It's to put out the fire that my, <laughs> my pants are on fire. I need to solve this problem immediately. And then it became, who's it for? What's it for? For other people. But like what it's brought me is that process of, um, of learning and, you know, rolling my sleeves up, getting beat up, sand kicked in my face, whatever metaphor you want to talk about. That whole process of learning to get stronger and tougher to you know, weather the storms, to bear the burdens, to get the calluses, you know, on my fingers, to play the guitar, you know, whatever. That's been so valuable to me in just getting stronger and stronger mentally to be able to handle bigger and better things. The financial side, it's changed my game too. I mean, um, it's brought in 
a lot of deal flow, sponsorship. There's lots of ways to monetize your content. I didn't start out thinking to monetize it, but it was just a happy, happy accident. But it's changed my life in so many ways. It's, it's brought me stability, economic stability. It's brought me uh, fulfillment and joy. I mean, I love doing it. I'm excited to wake up every day and do it. That's awesome. It's interesting because you, when you set out in 2008, during the recession, you did do YouTube. Yeah, yeah, I started, I started on YouTube. Which was interesting, but was your original vision that you would use YouTube as a way to build out your production company and that would be your, your lead generation? No, it was, I didn't even think about lead gen uh, on People YouTube. People gen, customer gen, yeah. I always feel weird calling them leads lately. I'm like, they're, they're called humans. Yeah. But getting customers and attention. I didn't, didn't even cross my mind to get customers. I went a totally different avenue. I went sort of direct and the networking route to get clients at first. I went to YouTube to start my show to solve my own problem, to, to really figure out how to be successful. I wanted to talk to other people who had done it so that I could know what to do. And that's why I went to YouTube. But the result was, like we just talked about, you never know who's watching. And so I would get approached by people that wanted to be on my show, at least by their agents or their PR team. And then I would meet some really amazing people. And when they would ask me afterwards, oh, what, you know, what else are you working on? I would tell them, oh, I'm this is how I make money. I do. I have a production company. We make you know commercials, and we do other kind of original content, and and I'm making a documentary film, blah blah blah. And they would say, "Oh, I've got a project for you. Do you want to do it?" And then it, the light bulb went on, like, "Oh, the show is also a lead generator. Yeah, like a way to get deal flow." That's interesting. Yeah. One thing, because as your show is called uh, "Behind the Brand," I think about brand, and lately I've been saying this phrase, Noah Kagan brand. And I've always, whenever someone said, no, your brand, no, your brand, no, I, your brand likes tacos. I was like, no, I just eat that. I, that's what I do for food a lot of the time. And so I guess it just kind of made me wonder how people should be thinking about their brand and defining a brand and what that means to like the, the customer as you, you know, as, as your show is about, not definitively, but. Yeah. A lot of people have taught me about brand. I've learned from um, like the godfather, Marty Newmeyer. Marty has written a lot of books on brand. Seth Godin, of course. Marty's point is really, I think, it's spot on. He said that um, the kind of brand that you have is not up to you. Your brand is in the opinion and experience of others. It's how they interact with you. Now, you may try to control the brand by controlling the narrative or putting out what you want people to see, but your actual brand is the way people experience you. And so if you have 10 customers or a 1,000 or a million, you might have a million different opinions about what that brand is. So the brand that does it well becomes, you know, first, you know, they differentiate themselves, but they also become in harmony with the opinions of other people. The example that Seth gave me that I thought was really good, he said, walk into any major brand hotel and don't look at the marquee, just look right down at the carpet. And he said, can you tell what, what hotel you're in by looking at the carpet? That's good. You know, Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, they're all good hotels, but you have no idea where you're at, right? But if Nike made a hotel, you can kind of envision what that might look like or feel like, right? That's cool. And I thought, oh, okay, I get it. Or if Harley Davidson made a hotel, probably be leather, right? <laughs> and like, uh, there's a tattoo uh, yeah. artist in the corner, you know, like you can have that image of it. And that's, that's how brand is formed. It's in the opinions of others. That's interesting to think about. I guess. How does someone think about that and explore that with themselves? I guess what it is is defining what, what matters to them. Well, I think like, so how am I building my brand? I want to start by keeping promises. Like if I, if I say something, I want to 
be true to what I say. Or if I miss say something, I want to say, oh, I messed up or that my mind has changed. You know, I've evolved on something and I've had this experience and now things are different. But I want to keep promises and I want to show my true authentic self according to me. Because I don't think anyone knows me as well as me. If I can be authentic, if I can be transparent, if I can be as much as I can my true self, then I think I'm, I'm living my brand. It's interesting. I like how you're thinking about it where the audience, you live the way you want to live and how you want to be. And the audience kind of defines who your brand is. Yeah. That's just weird because sometimes when I'm like Noah Kagan brand, I'm like, that's just me. But I guess people have their own perception. They, they're creating what experience that they almost expect from me though. Yeah. And I think it's okay if you have a, um, you think of it like spokes in the wheel. Maybe I come to Noah for taco recipes and that's all I care about is just tacos. Oh, he rides bikes too? I don't really care. Or, oh, he's amazing at business? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm more interested in tacos. That's fine, right? Interesting. It's an a la carte kind of menu and you can come get what you need. I think the thing that the way that we've started considering about uh, our business, growing this as a business as professionals, is like, what are our core messages so that when people think of us, they're thinking, oh, Noah's the coffee challenge guy. When they think of Brian, oh, no, Brian's the behind the scenes guy. And so having our core messages and defining it, and as we're doing content, like I have some questions that'll steer towards what our audience enjoys. The other thing I was actually, this is, this is really fascinating, blew my mind recently. Jeremy and our team posted on Instagram, on my Instagram thing, like, if you could hang out with Noah for a day, what would you want to do? And my first thought is everyone's going to say, let's start a business, let's do marketing. That's what I thought people want to do. Like, that's what they think of me, the, the people that, I mean, the, the audience. 50% of the people are like, I want to get tacos with him. I like to go for a bike ride and I just like to hang out. And I was like, one, that sounds awesome. And it was interesting that that was the expectation of the audience, which honestly, I, I really resonated with. I guess, how, how, would your, uh, how would your audience define your brand or what do you think they would think about you? Well, let me pay you a compliment first. So we talked about this on, on the last recording, but I think it strikes me that maybe you're underestimating that skill or talent that you have. You're a very likable person. And I think what makes you likable is you seem very grounded. You seem very willing to admit when you're wrong, to pivot, change direction. You're very approachable. You don't, you're not fronting. The opposite of all that, it makes someone very difficult to talk to, right? If they're always kind of puffed up and walking around like they're the stuff. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, I can't relate with that person because that's not me. I don't know everything. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, right? We want people that we relate to and we want to trust people. So all of those qualities are making you very trustworthy. I think that's what brings people in is that trust factor. You don't, you know, you don't want to get ripped off. You don't want to get misled. There's a lot of fake gurus out there who are calling themselves ninjas or gurus or you know whatever their name is. They're advertising on my YouTube channel because I, I, I know who they are. I, I was like, so annoying. Oh, it's annoying, but I'm getting, making money. And I'm like, if people are wanting to click their ads, and uh, I don't get it. But, yeah, it's annoying to me. But you have ads turned on? Yeah, I turn on. I, I monetize my channel. Well, take a second. Thank you for the compliment. Yeah. You know, so how am I growing my brand? I mean, I'm just trying to show people the real me, but I'm also, I'm going back to those two questions. It's like, who's it for and what's it for? And then really thinking about this idea Again, it's not my idea of the minimum viable audience. You know, I don't need 10 million subscribers. Mr. Beast tweeted today, if you know who Mr. Beast is, 40 million subscribers. And I tweeted back, congrats. That's awesome. And I'm really happy for him. I wish I had 40 million, but I don't need 40 million. I just need the right number of people to do what I need to do, accomplish my, my goal. And so I need to understand those people really well. Like, what do they need? What do they care about? What do they believe? 
Where are they struggling? And then it's just really focusing on how can you serve the people you're seeking to serve? You know, what's it for and who's it for? And it's really simple, I think, when you boil it down to those things. And then that becomes your mission. What is your goal? For the YouTube channel, I want to teach, inspire, and help people grow their business. I always say that behind the brand is insight to grow your business from the people who've done it. But it's also like a backstage pass. And so the reason I think storytelling is so important, and I struggled with this in the beginning because long form was not popular on YouTube 10 years ago. This was when everyone was saying, your video can't be more than two minutes. That's probably still true today, but we can watch a TED Talk, right? And so I felt like if you could sit down with Seth Godin or Gary Vee or who, you know, Noah Kagan for an hour. Wouldn't you rather have an hour than three minutes? Like, doesn't that just make sense? And so I started making long form content and, and it didn't do very well, but I stayed the course and I tried lots of different things, but it became important to try and inspire people and help them get out of the rut that I was in because it, it totally freed me up. It released me, you know, it allowed me to, to get oxygen like we talked about before. And it was a lifesaver. Do you have a quantifiable goal or do you have more like system goal or how do you actually consider that? For our overall business, not just YouTube. I guess I do have some personal financial goals. Like I want to be completely out of debt because I remember the days when I was really in debt and it was so heavy to carry that around. And when something goes wrong, like it always does, if you've got other people who are counting on you, like like I do, it can really be emotionally difficult. You know, it can be very taxing, very stressful. At this point, I've weathered so many storms. I've been to hell and back so many times. It's like my skin is like fireproof, right? To a certain extent, but not my family's. They're, you know, they're less used to that. And so that's why I want more financial freedom. Wealth is great. How much is financial freedom? Because I think we talked about this uh, for your show and you guys should check out behind the brand. I think people say like, I want financial freedom. I want this stuff. Sometimes I'm always like, well, how much? Because it's a lot less than I think people realize. I think that's the part that always surprises me. Yeah, so I mean, I'm always curious to hear people's numbers. I think it's the your break-even number. So whatever that is, let's say it's you know, it's five thousand dollars a month. I think financial freedom is five thousand dollars a month plus about six months worth of savings when something goes wrong, not if, because it will. So five times what did I say three to three to five months, three to six months is that yeah. thirty another thirty grand? So it's five thousand dollars a month plus thirty grand in the bank. That's you, financial freedom. Do you have a number? Like, is you talking about like just the amount of money you want, or just talking about monthly income? I thought you were asking about financial freedom. Yeah, because you were saying you have a goal of financial freedom. So I was curious what that amount is. My goal is, and I can share personal finances with you if you want. But basically, it's my break-even number. Okay. Plus three to six months worth of savings. So in my world, let's call it, um, you know, twenty thousand dollars a month, for example, and a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. That would make me feel financially free. What would that give you? This is what my, damn, this sounds like my therapy session. She's like, well, every time I talk, she's like, well, what would that give you? I mean, what would that give you? I mean, I am curious. I don't want to be repetitive, but I really think it's less for me because I, I can live on and I have lived on Top Ramen and, you know, I could live I still do. out back at some park in a cardboard box. Like I can really hunker down. I can go into survival mode. I've done it so many times. But again, the people that rely on me, so I've got four children. I've got a wife. She has her own small business, but it's like we have this social contract where I've agreed to be the primary provider and she's agreed to, you know, do these things. So we have like this teamwork effort going on. But like people are counting on me to, you know, buy uh, Cheerios and milk and 
and toilet paper. And um, if someone needs a new pair of shoes or soccer practice or, you know, all those things, I feel the weight of that. And so financial freedom is really critical to me. I used to live primarily hand to mouth and that was not fun. Going further on that, my guess, or at least my assumption, and I'm curious to hear that more of the details is that like your income seems like it would be like this, like not feast or famine, but like you have some YouTube revenue, which is like that. But then you have like the production studio, which is we have a hit, we're getting paid. There's not a hit, we're getting a hit. So I guess I was curious to hear a little bit more about the details of the YouTube, like the income streams that you've created for yourself to, sure. to lead to that. Because I think that's also inspirational for a lot of people to say, hey, I'm, I'm into film. I'm, I've always been curious about film and productions, but to never really get to know. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. I live in project world. And so it's important to have a lot of boats in the water ready to sail at all times because they don't all launch at once, right? And so the YouTube channel has become a happy accident, found revenue stream of incremental money. AdSense, if you're trying to build a business on YouTube, is not a great strategy because you might be in the entertainment category and you're making a 2 to $4 CPM. If you're talking about other things in my category, you're making a 30 to $40 CPM, which is much better. But still, if you're not getting very many views or you don't have very many subscribers, it's just going to take more time for that snowball to, to grow into something that could be a sustainable full-time income for someone to unplug you know, from their day job. So for me, I call it passive income or it helps cover the cost of production, but it's become profitable since. So we have the YouTube AdSense, but also we have sponsors. Uh, and this is the same approach with sponsors that I did with Seth. I asked them, what's important to you? And a lot of them would say, you know, we're used to advertising with the big companies, the big publishers, or if they have money to advertise on TV. Most of my clients, they don't advertise on TV. They're people like um, Veridesk. They're called Veri now, but like the stand-up desks, Mazda, uh, cars, you know, automobiles advertise with us. A boutique hotel called AKA Hotels are great. They're in lots of different cities. But they've had the budget for digital, but they've had to pay kind of through the nose with bigger publishers. So when they approached me, it was like, hey, all decisions start and stop right here. Like I, I have the decision-making power. I mean, it can be $25,000 per insertion or it can be $5 per insertion. It's really up to, let's figure this out. So it just started with like, what do you guys need? And then them asking me, what do I need? And us coming to this meeting of the minds, be like, all right, I know how to help you. You becoming a sponsor of my show helps me. This is how it helps. And let's go. And it's been the best partnership that way is, is helping them accomplishing their goals first, helping them get what they want first. And then you get what you want. Yeah. I mean, that's not original, right? I think it's very hard to actually do. I think almost none of us do it consistently. But let's stick in the revenue stream so we can keep going on that. Well, I want to ask you why I think it's hard, but I think I know why it's hard. I think it's hard because for some reason, people don't seem to ask that question. Like, what is it that you actually need? Because when I asked them, it wasn't what you thought. Some of them wanted lead gen and, you know, they wanted people to jump through hoops. But um, most of it was awareness, which is like one of the easiest things to do. And so what the bigger guys can't do that I can do is I can be personal. So I have, you know, if you're advertising with Forbes magazine, Forbes is going to put you on their website or in their magazine, and it's going to be fairly impersonal. But if you advertise with behind the brand or with Brian or Noah, you know, Noah's going to probably say, I love this taco sauce. And, you know, I've tried it. It's delicious. And I have it on these tacos every weekend. And that testimonial, that sort of 
more personal approach is much stronger and you help people, you help the, the advertisers, the brand partners bridge the trust gap. And it goes back to trust. Yeah. And it becomes much more potent and higher engagement and that's everything I think people want. There's only two of the income streams out of the other ones you have. So I was curious to hear. Uh, so we, we also do a fair amount of B-roll footage. So we like create amazing 4K, 6K, 8K footage that we sell to people like Shutterstock and other people. Oh, that's cool. We are developing classes and programs to teach people about all the things that we know, filmmaking, being new to YouTube. But the one thing that's come out of the YouTube channel specifically is other, I call them celebrities and brands of moderate size who don't have you know huge budgets like a Red Bull, for example. They're much, 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 much smaller. They're asking us to kind of become a 360 approach, like create the content, well, create the strategy, create the content calendar, you know, film, edit, produce, oh, wow. publish, manage, do all the metadata, the tagging, the so we are now managing a handful of YouTube channels for a handful of people at a premium. We've been doing this for the past three years. It's been fantastic. How does the revenue break out between those different categories? For them or for us? For you, just in terms of your overall pie. Not only personal numbers, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. more just like So I would say I would say at this point it's um probably 33 33 33. It's pretty equally split, but it's becoming more heavily weighed on managing other people's channels because we are rev sharing with them. We're taking uh, on some of the risk if people don't have the budget for the production. We're saying, "Okay, fine. We'll then take a revenue s- split." In other words, it's a performance-based we'll we'll get what we earn because we know that we can build it. We have a, you know, we have a, a plan, a roadmap to how to make it successful. Why haven't you tried to see if you could just do hundred percent YouTube and try to make that go from like the hundreds of thousands of subscribers, which is amazing. That's already top to like the million and, and make that the main focus instead of three separate things. I think it's because these other things also light me up. I worked for other people for, you know, 10 plus years of my career basically doing the same thing over and over. I mean, yeah, there was different movies and we did different things, but it's basically the same job. And so I know my personality is, I get a little bit restless doing the same thing. Like I am, I get bored. So we're the same. Yeah, I get I get bored. I need to do different things and I need different challenges. And so I like the variety of it. I don't want to just be forced to do one thing. I want to even have, you know, 10 to 20% of my time to experiment and do different things to see, what else I can discover? That's that's just about my personality. What's the coolest or unique Hollywood story you have? I have a feeling you have some wild stuff. Unfortunately, it's probably everything you can imagine. It's It no, was I really... I can just imagine it's crazy. I don't know what it means though. I was sort of disappointed, to be honest. And it's because I guess I really take issue because I relate to the underdog. I feel like I still am the underdog. I run my life like I'm the underdog when I'm not all the time, but I feel that way. <laughs> And so when I see people who have a little bit of power exploit other people, like not be nice to them or, you know, try and get them out of their life or, you know, get them fired or do bad things, it really is a trigger for me. And all of Hollywood is sort of like that, like in my experience, a lot of politics, a lot of fronting, a lot of facades. And I just wish people could just be real, you know. I literally had people. Managers tell me, don't look in so-and-so's eyes. Don't look him in the eyes. And we pitched, there was this movie called Meet the Parents. Yeah, huge. Yeah. And there was a leading man 
who was trying to break out of the comedic role and be more of a, you know, like action hero kind of guy. And so we, we mocked up the cover art with him wearing bunny slippers. And he was so pissed. Like he threatened to get us all fired. How dare you? You know, I'm trying to be this leading man. You made me look like a fool. And we're just like, dude, why are you taking yourself so seriously? And it's just that kind of stuff, you know. I don't know. It's just not my deal. I think what's fascinating uh, is to break into the movie industry now, it's like, you know, historically there was a path. You go to the production house, you go to these places, you, or maybe I guess porno if you're not doing great or maybe you want to, whatever. But now like YouTube is literally democratic, what is Democratizing. Thank you. That anyone could be in the movie industry and then that can lead to documentaries or different types of things. I'm not saying it's the path, but it is a new path that that's opened up. Yeah. I could talk a lot about that. That's maybe the next session, but um, I've still found there's a very high wall between Hollywood with quotes and everything else that the true Hollywood people look down their nose and look down on the Amazons, the Netflix, the YouTubes. I mean, there's sort of a, a higher hierarchy, a pecking order, and YouTube's at the very bottom, believe me. How do you break into that industry? And do you think that's even an industry that people want to break into? Or is it this new other industry is just going to surpass it? I view content as content, right? So if you make something, tell a story, and you put it on film, or you put it on a podcast, you could literally put that anywhere, right? It could go to the movie theaters, if that's where it belongs. So I don't think that, that the platform matters anymore. Like a recent example, fairly recent, is did you ever watch that show Mad Men? Yeah, a little bit. Great show. But do you remember who carried that show? Like where, where it was broadcast? Uh, TMC. It was, I think it was AMC. Yeah, AMC. And who even knows what AMC stands for, right? Like who, who even cares? And who would have thought that a little obscure network like that would carry such an iconic show? Mm. And the only reason we cared or watched to tune into AMC was because of Mad Men. So it's not about the platform. It's not about like Disney or Warner Brothers or Sony. Like It's not about the studio that puts it out. It's about the content. And so the platform really doesn't even matter. Even if the platform changes, you know, tomorrow, and it will, right? Like today it's Netflix and maybe tomorrow it's Amazon, who knows? But like the platform doesn't matter. It's the content. So in our last two questions, and this is where we'll spend the majority of the time, I was curious how your adoption affected your career. How do you think that's affected your career path? And especially now you're making a documentary. I think about your adoption. My story is the throughput, but it's not, a, it's not my story. So it's not a singular story about my story. It's really a story about why identity is so important. Me personally, I couldn't live in the present fully without reconciling my past. That was the main issue. I didn't know my past. In fact, if I had not done my own investigative work, my true identity, who I really was, who I was related to, my blood, was and still is a state secret. The state of California has not officially ever released my original birth certificate. So officially, I shouldn't know who my biological father or mother is. And to someone who's adopted, I know it's hard to explain to someone else, but like, it feels like a violation of human rights. I feel you. I don't, I don't know how to understand, but I can feel that. And so I think on the negative side, I fell into victim mentality a lot. Like things were being done to me and I played the victim. And what I realized only just recently, about a decade ago, is that that's not a good, good idea. And so a lot of people, and some who were really instrumental, really helped refocus or reframe how I saw that. And I refocused and reframed to seeing myself as a survivor 
of something shitty that happened. And trust me, there's far worse things happening to people every single day. So it's like, you can't compare scars, right? Because someone's always got a deeper, more gnarly scar than you do. It's not about that. But for me, it was a mindset thing of, of changing from being the victim into the survivor. And so once I started doing that, once I started seeing new opportunities, when I was in victim mode, I was waiting for someone to save me. I was waiting for someone to, I almost entitled, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm hurting here. Someone come with the rescue boats. And there were none. And so I had to make a decision. Do I drown right here on the spot? Do I die? Or do I start swimming to shore, even though I can't see shore? And I decided to swim. And how do you think that's affected your career? I think it's a metaphor for, I mean, every single day. I, um, I feel like every single day I decide to sort of helicopter jump into the middle of an ocean. There's an island that I can see far away over there, and there's one over here, and I get to decide which one to swim to. And um, my only option now is to swim towards it, and it takes, still takes a lot of effort. And I still, you know, swallow a lot of salt water and want to throw up a lot of the time. But um, I've learned to push through pain and, you know, hard times. And if I just stick with it, I get to the island eventually. Sometimes I get there quick. Sometimes it takes a long time, but I get there. It's like the uh, Mel Robbins video. You just keep tinkering with it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned so much from so many people. That's my privilege, right? Like, and that's why I'm here with you is I'm hoping some of your fairy dust rubs off on me. But I really, truly can say that I've learned a little something from every guest. And that's been the most rewarding and the biggest return on my investment. One of the things I want to acknowledge about you that I really like is that I think it's great to listen to ourselves where you're saying, I need to know this answer and I don't want to be a victim about it. I want to do something. I want to solve it. And you went and did something about it, which was you did find your father and the mother part where she actually said no. You weren't able to find out, but you at least made the effort to solve it. I think another thing that's really interesting about a brand or about a person or about the things we admire is that they kind of accept and embrace some of that diversity and adversity as well. You're like, hey, I'm adopted. Not only am I not going to hide it, I'm going to put it out front. And I think there's something there with all of us as we're doing things publicly or even you know in our, in our relationships, like how do I maybe bring some of that to the surface? And I think that's probably helped, uh, I don't know, make it more interesting, not even just more interesting, more make your life more colorful. It's become a signal when I feel like I want to throw up, then I <laughs> I go and lean harder into that thing. It's a signal for me that I'm on the right track. So I was going to tell you the story about the rabbi. So uh, I found out through my heritage that my dad is Jewish, uh, Ashkenazi. Mazal tov. Thanks. Yeah, dude. And uh, my mom's Christian. So, you know, my dad's family came from, we think, some part of either Ukraine, Poland, you know, it was Galatia at the time, right? Like Eastern Europe. And my mom's family was from Scotland. So I wanted to know more about my dad's side and investigate those roots. And I asked him, you know, dad, how should I identify? I mean, your mom's Jewish. I know how this works. So you're Jewish. What am I? <laughs> like, I have Jewish blood. I have 50% Ashkenazi blood. Am I Jewish? He goes, well, you should go talk to a rabbi. So I did. Went to talk to the rabbi. You know, I have to preface this with like rejection and abandonment. These are all triggers for me, right? But like, um, I've since gotten better at, at understanding them and feeling them and sometimes laughing at it. Like, again, it's this throw up feeling. I'll just go ahead and do it anyway. But so I talked to the rabbi and I said, So here's my situation. I recently found out that I'm Jewish. And he goes, You're not Jewish. I said, Oh, okay. Please educate me. 
oh, well, you know, it's got to be through the mother's uh, lineage. And, and I said, uh, okay, so how should I identify? Like, you know, is it insulting if I say that I'm Jewish? He said, you shouldn't say you're Jewish because you're not. I was like, okay, you can say you have Jewish heritage. Your dad's Jewish. Okay. And I was reflecting on that a little bit. And I thought, you know, all my dad's side is Jewish. I love them to death. And, and I actually feel Jewish. If that's, I don't know if that's funny to say, but I feel that in me. I feel that side of me. I've always kind of felt different in some way. And maybe that's what I was identifying with. But like, that's part of me, right? And when I told him that, I was reflecting on how it's really easy for cultures to be exclusive. In other words, push people out instead of be more inclusive and, and include them. And it would, I understand, you know, uh, I've seen Fill It on a Roof. Tradition, right? It's tradition. Oh, you're a Jew now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand tradition. But I also had my own theories about why this was the case. You know, like, I get it. Like, I did some research and I figured out, you know, the Temple of Solomon was a very sacred place, right? Supposedly. And it, it was where the, you know, the Ten Commandments were kept, right? The Ark of the Covenant. And only certain people could go into the temple. That was a very strict rule. And so my guess is that you literally had to see the baby come out of the mother's body to count it as Jewish so that you could make sure that they weren't an intruder or a, a thief that wanted to sneak into the temple. And that's why that mm. tradition started. After all, Moses, Moses is not Jewish, right? Moses is a Hebrew. And his wives, he had two wives, right? One was from Ethiopia and the other one was both not Jewish. But Moses is the guy, right? Like it's where it starts and everything flows from that. But but looking back on why maybe that tradition started, I get it because you had to make sure that the person was not a, a thief or a, an intruder going to do something bad in the temple. And so, you know, that helped me at least reconcile that rejection a little bit. But it's just interesting, right? Like I think it would have been very easy for him to say, you know, welcome to the tribe or like, you know, we'd love to have you or please come learn more about your heritage. Or, there was none of that. I was just like, you're not Jewish. You know, don't even bother. Like with everything happening in the world, I would think you want more people on your team than less people, right? Like yeah. or, or more, more people supporting you, even though, you know, I can't not support. I'm, you know, that's my family. It's my heritage. How was it meeting your father the first time? It was surreal. It was scary because I was expecting the same kind of rejection I got from my mom, but then I was pleasantly surprised. Surreal is the best word. But also, I got some closure because he, he told me the story. I've been very public about how adoptees feel, and your mind goes to places you don't expect, the far left okay. and the far right. What was the story? So it turns out that my biological mom and dad were high school sweethearts. So they dated from freshman year through senior year. They went to prom. He had all their prom pictures still. And he said they met at the shoe store, you know, in the, in the mall. He, you know, he was on the football team. She was a cheerleader. And, you know, they took the relationship a little bit too far and she got pregnant. But they were very much in love, you know, as, as much as you can be at 17, but just not ready to get married. It was nice to at least hear that story because I was prepared for a whole other story, which is, you know, the worst case scenario. But it turned out to be, pretty normal, regular story, I think, of just two kids maybe making a bad choice or, you know, taking a relationship too far when they weren't ready. And I was the result. It's a hard thing when you are on this side because because you can feel like no one wanted you. And that's where the kind of the chip on the shoulder comes into play. It's like I heard Steve Jobs kind of allude to the same kind of thing, like he was going to show the people that 
gave up on him basically that he was going to amount to something and that was a main driver in his ambition and you know what helped him what did your dad say what did he how, how was he feeling in the years between the adoption and when you met it was out of sight out of mind for him wow he's of a different generation you know he's a hippie he grew up on the east coast he moved out to california uh southern california and then moved to the bay area where he's you know spent the rest of his life very liberal thinker you know, everything you can imagine that the hippie did during the, the 60s. Yeah. He said he, you know, followed the Grateful Dead. He lived across the street from Janis Joplin. You know, he uh, played guitar in a cave. He was in the wine business all his life. And so I think it was sort of like, what's that phrase from um, that boomer generation? It's like, live and let die. That kind of attitude, like, you know, hmm. it's better off not talked about or not, don't worry about it. You know, let it, let it go, that kind of thing. What questions did you have for him? I wanted to know where he'd been. I wanted to know what he was like because I'd always been curious about this nature versus nurture thing. In you know, my adopted family, I didn't grow up with a with a father figure. My mom was married three times before I was sixteen. So the men would come and then they would go. And it was really all always, you know, her husband, not my stepdad. And I longed for a father figure, I longed for someone to, you know, teach me how to throw a baseball or how to be a man, how to shave, you know, all, all these things I kind of had to figure out on my, my own. But I also wanted to, f to understand what kind of dad he was growing up because I, I guess maybe I fantasized a little bit like that's what I missed. Like I wanted to kind of calculate or estimate what I lost. I guess the part with nature versus nurture, I was curious. What do you think about it for how people become? I definitely think it's um, a lot of it's hardwired. You're hardwired a certain way, and it's out of your control. Uh, it turns out that he and I are very much alike on being independent. We both have a very small circle of tight friends. And incidentally, my dad passed away very unexpectedly last year. Sorry to hear that. And it was very hard. Um, but at the same time, I had a lot of gratitude that at least we had that time together, that I got to get to know him a little bit and have some sort of closure and get to know this new family. You know, I have sisters and uncles and aunts and it's been wonderful getting to know them, but the nature part is real. Like we are very much alike in many different ways, in our mannerisms, in you know the things that we like and, and don't like. Uh, he was very much the host. Like whenever he would talk about his camping trips, like he would go with his brother, who's his best friend, his older brother by seven years, and he would be the guy that would remember the firewood, that would know how to set it up, and remember you know to waterproof the tent and pack the sleeping bags. His brother was, you know, fun and fancy free and, you know, not focused on making sure that other people are taken care of. And I realized that I'm also like that. Like, I'm more interested in making sure that other people are taken care of before I take care of myself. So that's just one example. And then last question, uh, or one of our signature questions is, what would the Brian Elliott challenge be? We do, I like doing challenges because I think it's a way of like pushing yourselves and getting uncertainty and growing. And so I was curious what if you had a defining signature challenge, what would it be? Maybe it's it's something that I'm still struggling with, which is balance. So there's a saying, you know, like you can have work life, a friend life, you can have an active life, you have to choose one of three or something like that. I don't really subscribe to that. Like I want to have it all. <laughs> like I want to feel great. I want to look great. I want to be my best. I want to be successful, accomplish my goals. I want to have it all. And so... I guess I'm this work in progress that my, my challenge would be probably the thing that I'm still challenged by, which is finding the balance. Because whenever I'm starting to excel in one, the other one seems to be neglected. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to do my push-ups, or 
I ate really badly yeah. two nights ago, and so I let that slip. But I just got a big paycheck. <laughs> you know, so it's like I would like balance. What would be a challenge you could do to 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 practice that? For me, it's always been about small, actionable steps, creating a plan. Because when it's off in the distance, I don't know how to get there. I don't know where to start. So for me, it's literally like one tiny little actionable step. So if it's like setting a goal to not eat certain foods, like for me, you know, in my 20s, I could eat just about anything I wanted to. Now it turns out like bread makes me feel bloated. Dairy products, I don't always feel great after I eat them, even though I love yogurt and cheese and all these yummy things. I can't really love dairy anymore. And then sweets and desserts. Uh, about five years ago, I started getting really bad headaches and traced it back to sugar, refined sugars being a trigger of headaches. So I've eliminated that from my diet. So it's small little actionable steps. You know, if it's business stuff, it's I want to write one script a week so that I can make a video. Or if it's finding new clients, I want to do this, that, and the other so I can find new clients. It's actionable small steps. Sweet. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks, dude. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. If you did, make sure to check out Brian's YouTube channel, Behind the Brand. It's not the cereal. Where Brian interviews some of the best marketers out there. Next, text a friend you love them. Hey, amigo, let's do Noah's Law of 100 challenge together. And before you go, don't email me, but tweet at me, at Noah Kagan, what you thought about this episode. Also, remember to go to subscribe to my email list. I think you're probably already on it, so you can ignore this part. And you probably actually didn't make it this far in the episode anyways. Who cares? But it's sendfox.com slash Noah for the two people out there that are still here. I like you, dog. And speaking of SendFox, the number one piece of advice I literally give to everyone starting a business, even if they don't have an idea, is to start a newsletter around any topics that you're interested in. So you can go to sendfox.com and do it today, right now, literally. Go do it on your phone right now. It's free. And finally, a couple of special shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason, who does all the editing for these shows. He's podcasttech.com. If you want to steal them away from me, and you can't steal them because we share. And thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Michael, and Jen of the Dork Team for doing all the stuff that you guys do. And finally, a special shout out to Amy Lozano. What a great sounding last name. From the customer support team at appsumo.com. Just wanted to let you know you're doing amazing for all of the Sumo Links and Sumo Group itself. Thank you. Have a chestastic day. What's been your favorite AppSumo deal?